For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. General Porter, General Porter, all hands on your battle stations. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak, back for another live Midrats, so as I like to do. If you are with us live uh, and you would like to contribute to the conversation. If you scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that's where you will find the chat room. We'll be monitoring it uh, during the course of the show. And if you have some observations or some questions you would like for us to direct to our guests during the course of the next hour, it's a great place to put it. We'll be glad to grab those ideas and just fold it into the conversation as things move forward. And our conversation today, we're returning to a familiar piece of ground but uh, kind of you'll see in a, a few of our questions and, and comments in the next hour, uh, once again, we have found ourselves uh, keeping our eye off of what we called now and then the long game. Uh, everybody, in many ways, rightfully and understandably, is in focus on the Russia-Ukrainian war. Uh, but the People's Republic of China uh, has an opportunity again, like she did with our over two decades focused on uh, small land wars in, in Central and Southwest Asia, uh, she is able to continue to solidify her position in her near abroad and globally. And even though things are not a cold war, I think the world's response to COVID kind of accentuated trends that were already in play. This is a struggle between China and the United States and her friends and allies, which I think is fair because China doesn't have quite the network we have, for presence, influence, and setting the condition for advantage should our positioning and peace transition to something a little more dangerous. The United States and our Navy aren't required, though, to be passive, even though our national security apparatus can be distracted by other things that are going on. And today, we're going to look at not just what China has been doing and continues to move forward uh, on her priorities and her agenda but things that the United States and her friends can do to help blunt Chinese influence and to prevent her from setting up in the Western Pacific in such a way that advantages that, that we and our friends have enjoyed uh, pretty much in the post-World War II era are, are no longer there for us, and China instead has the large hand. And our guest today for the full hour is Brent Sadler. He's a senior fellow for Maritime Security and Advanced Naval Technology at the Heritage Foundation. And Brent is here on his own regard, and his comments may or may not represent those of any organizations that he may be associated with. 
Brent, welcome to MidRats. Oh, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to the discussion. Just as a as a scene setter, um, first of all, I, we we've been in touch via variety of mediums for a while, and, it, and it's really great to have you on here because you're not just a, another attractive DC think tank guy. You actually come into play with uh, over a quarter century experience as a U.S. Navy officer in submarines, and you're not quite a unicorn. But uh, when you, you look at the CV of a variety of people in the think tanks that are, are helping the conversation about our national security requirements go, uh, it's, uh, it's not a real common environment. So just uh, you know, after a, a quarter century plus of playing around with submariners, um, how are you adjusting well to the D.C. think tank world? Well, I love the uh, the intellectual freedoms that I've got now. I mean, for for the better part of the last ten years, twelve years of my time in in uniform, I was working with a lot of very senior flag officers, uh, joint as well as navy, and the interagency very senior political appointees across a lot of different areas to try to make this competition with China realistic. You know, starting first with the rebalance to Asia. But when you're in those worlds, you have to be very careful about what you say and, and how you communicate it and, uh, you know, definitely push the envelope. But now, finally, I have that intellectual freedom where I can go where the facts and where the best policies that at least I see from my background and my experience growing up in Asia and the South Pacific kind of lead me to. And so that's been really liberating. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about about how you got involved with uh, with China, because I know some of that experience the last uh, 12 years of your Navy career involved uh, facing to the to the west from our side and and looking at things in the in the Western Pacific. Can you talk a little bit about that? No, absolutely. So um, I, I was at National War College in 2010 with another shipmate, uh, Brian Clark, and uh, the the. Chief of Naval Operations, Gary Ruffett at the time, was concerned that we weren't balancing our forces the right way. And in those days, the Navy had this traditional culture of 50% of the fleet in the Atlantic and 50% of the fleet in the Pacific, and how to actually think through and win the debate to start shifting more forces to the Pacific. And um, I took on a, a extracurricular activity for a year working with them personally, that uh, started to set the foundation of what became the rebalance Asia Pacific. And that led to North Korean policy reviews with the NSC, which led to going to PACOM. And it just started to spiral out that I became that guy that could connect where Navy fits into this larger national effort to begin to compete with the Chinese in the real way. And so it, it, it started with the homework assignment, you know, do an after school homework assignment with the chief of Naval operations about the simplest way to say it, and it, it continues to this day. You know, it's interesting we talk about that 50-50 split and we started to look at rebalancing. And it goes back to one of the things that we've talked to a lot about uh, here on MidRats the last 13 years we've been here. And uh, it's something that uh, with the proposed changes in, in Title X and the secondary effects of that has been kind of interesting for mm. the eggheads who look at what's going on in the Hill, because we're talking about the presence mission. Uh, obviously, you want to have your fleet position in case of what you expect for there to be conflict. You have the uh, assets available to do what you need to do. But uh, in peacetime, there is this presence mission. And, you know, mm -hmm. 
Talk about how that plays into that rebalancing of uh, not just intellectual effort and focus, but uh, sailors, yeah. ships, and aircraft of, of all the joint force uh, mm-hmm. looking west as to east. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, the, nothing else is possible unless you're actually physically present. And you have to be meaningfully physically present with, like, ships, aircraft, um, Marines, of course, as well. If you're not, if you're not there in the neighborhood, uh, words are cheap. Uh, the Chinese are there in numbers and in, in size. And so if you're a Malaysia or you're a Japan or you're a Taiwan, um, you're listening to the words, but you're also looking for the reassurance that there's something substantive behind it. And likewise, the, the Chinese are listening to the words and they don't believe you unless they see something tangible on the other side of those words to indicate that you're going to do something about what those words mean or what your interests are. So that's like the simplest part of what presence is about. And when we're not there, I mean, the, his, the historical record in Asia just proves it time and time again. Uh, after we withdrew bases in the Philippines in the early 90s, the Chinese started aggressively starting to move into contested waters of the Philippines. And that would not have happened if we had still had bases in Subic. Um, and that kind of culminated in what happened in 2015 with the massive island building because we weren't there. We weren't pushing back against Chinese testing of the waters in 2012 and 13. They accelerated. And so all things began. Effective diplomacy relies on having that big stick. You know, to quote Teddy Roosevelt, you need to speak softly and carry a big stick. And for too long, we've been talking loudly and setting aside or diminishing the size of that stick, really undermining our words and our diplomacy. Yeah, I, I, about uh, boy, about four years ago, we had Hunter Styers on our on our show and talked about his article on on uh, using the coin, the counterinsurgency principles in, in deal, dealing with uh, with China and the South China Sea. And uh, I, I noticed you referenced him in your in your piece that we wanted to talk about about uh, how to mm-hmm. slow cook China, China's uh, <laughs> South China Sea frog. And uh, and I, I wanted to uh, to to uh, mentioned that that Hunter's done a great job looking at this area of the world, uh, and and I thought you did a really nice uh, kind of riff off that on on, on your proposals. Um, but you know, let's talk a little bit about Hunter talks about the fact that the Chinese aren't in, and I think we've talked to Gene Chang about this too, that the Chinese mm-hmm. aren't just interested in in. Uh, and, and having sway over the South China Sea, they want to change the international order. Uh, could you talk about that yes. a little bit and why that's a problem for us? No, absolutely. So um, it, it's a global – so the Chinese target, I mean, their principal strategic objective is first unification with Taiwan. And then once that happens, it's the globe. It, and, and that's their intent. And, they, and as a Marxist-Leninist communist uh, government, it's based on a very unstable worldview, and that is they have to dominate. They cannot tolerate a competitive, successful system, i.e. a democratic one. Taiwan is the nearest example of a democratic Chinese country that's able to succeed. Next is probably Singapore, if you want to look at it from that perspective. So on no illusions, the Chinese Communist Party cannot tolerate a world where some system is more successful than theirs eventually for them to achieve the legitimacy and the security that they see is necessary for power at home. 
So that's the first thing. The real, you know, that's the first realization that people needed to come to in our government, which really starts back, unfortunately, really late, about 20 years too late in 2012, 2013, after the Scarborough Shoal a disaster, um, diplomatic disaster that that was. So the Hunter, uh, Hunter Steyer's discussion about, hey, let's look at this like counterinsurgency, it was fabulous because for years I couldn't quite find my way to articulate in the convincing enough argument with the senior leadership when I was still in uniform why presence would be so important and how to think about it. And again, you got a lot of Army guys and the joint staff. They understand when you say counterinsurgency, it was easy to start to get their head wrapped around. This is not about a force-on-force force necessarily kinetic fight. This is they're looking to win over people and change the patterns of life day to day. And then when they do that, they've won. There's no reason for you to be there, and you'll be shown the door. U.S. interests will go out the door with it. So I thought it was a remarkable uh, approach, to, a way of framing. It's not exactly 100% like you're running a counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, of course. It's different because you're at sea. And it's two major powers competing over the way people behave on the seas in the South China Sea. You know, we, our co-host mentioned the boil the frog <laughs> competition oh, yeah. uh, uh, illusion, and I like the way you use that because, as I kind of mentioned in the in the intro, that uh, I think at least in this sector, if uh, if if I were Chinese and and not an American, mm. uh, I would look at what my primary competitor, the United States, has been distracted with for basically 21 years. And that created a lot of space and opportunity for me not just to grow, but to carefully maneuver various pieces along different lines of operation to uh, get what I want in the long run because I'm not looking in election cycles or anything like that. The party will be here Mm -hmm. regardless of who's heading it. Um, If if you could do like a real – we talk about bowling the frog, but it's kind of like when you mm. do a time-lapse photograph when you run it real fast. Oh, yeah. What do you think are the, the, the top lines of operation that the, the People's Republic of China has been working down the last two decades that people should, should yeah. focus on and, and, and can see in real time if you did that little time-lapse zoom? Yeah. So um, I guess probably the best way is to look at the island building that starts really in the, the early part of last last decade, uh, like 2012, 2013, <clears throat> and why the Chinese thought that was important and what it would enable. Um, and, it, and the Chinese were looking at a world where the U.S. was just beginning to shift its focus to the Indo-Pacific. You know, this was the beginning of the, the rebalanced Asia-Pacific so the Chinese were trying to figure out, okay, how do we get ahead of the Americans, the, the capacity, and how do we start to change the realities on the ground so that the Americans are dissuaded from, from trying to even be present, to see no value, uh, to try to push their way back into Southeast Asia. And it's really Southeast Asia at this time. Um, and so they have their own presence problems and sustainability. They had to look at logistics. How do they maintain their ships and their aircraft on a day-to-day basis all the way down to the Straits of Malacca. Uh, and so then enter in the building up of these garrisons, these man-made archipelago of man-made fo- island fortresses in the South China Sea, and very large airfields. 
So that gave them the ability to then sustain this presence to coerce and to intimidate not only just the fishing fleets and to set, start setting new patterns of life down in that part of the world, but also to start to leverage like things like Belt and Road, uh, leverage personal diplomatic uh, policies that they have favorable ones in countries like Malaysia, Thailand, most notably Thailand buying Chinese submarines was, was a big issue during the coup in 2014 timeframe. Uh, it enables their diplomacy, a more proactive diplomacy. And that part right there, we were very late to coming to realize that on the U.S. side. Um, Many people in the military, I mean, when this, when this islands campaign started to, to be recognized in late 2013, 14 in the U.S. side, it was kind of like discarded as those facilities are useless. In, in a war, they'll just be destroyed in the first hour of a fight. But that viewpoint completely and totally misunderstood what the Chinese were doing. And that was not looking at those garrisons that they were building for sustaining a fight against the United States. It was about winning the day-to-day competition and intimidating countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam from saying, hey, we're here right now every day. Don't invite the Americans for a port visit. Don't buy those weapon systems from them because they're not going to be here and they're not going to be a reliable partner for you because they're not going to be able to stay present like we are. And, and that was the real focus. It had nothing to do about war fighting. But that was what we fixated on for years. And it basically de-emphasized day-to-day freedom of navigation operations, uh, which, have, which have also changed a lot. I mean, if you look back with you know, 20 years with a freedom of navigation or even in the Cold War, what they were, to what we're trying to use them for with the Chinese, it's very different. Um, and so I think we really missed the bus, so to speak, on what China was trying to accomplish with the garrisons and the islands in the South China Sea. Uh, and that was part of a, a, a frog-boiling kind of strategy. And, and other smarter China, China experts are the ones that coined this many years ago at Naval War College. And it's you take these little gradual incremental changes and so imperceptive or easy to miss what the Chinese intent is over years to where there was – barely able to maintain a presence in the South China Sea, down off of Malaysia and down off of Matuna Island of Indonesia, to where now it's, they're there in number every day, large numbers. And that's because they've changed very gradually. They slow-cooked the U.S., and now it's almost to a point that it's too late. But the U.S. has a lot of friends, has a lot of capacity still to do many things. It just hasn't chosen to do it yet. It needs to change its priorities. And uh, in, that, in that article that I, I try to provide very discreet, hey, here's four geographic areas where if you're present in the following way, you can start to complicate and play a game the Chinese understand very well. And you can play it back on them because they have a weak hand. You just need to start playing to their weaknesses a lot better. Yeah, I, I, I took a look at your article and then I went to the uh... – the, the Department Secret no, the Department of State uh, has a has a uh, I don't I can't remember the name of what it's called right now. But anyway, I've, yeah, I, I looked at their ma- I looked at their maps and that they put on this thing. It's something to do with limits limits of the sea or uh, something. Limits in the sea. Limits in the sea. Yeah, sorry, one of those. Well, I'm old enough. My brain occasionally just quits working. Um, 
limits in the sea, and, and I took one of their charts and I drew on it the areas, just circle on the areas what you talked about in your piece about about what we should do. So let's talk a little bit about what we should do and why you chose the areas you chose that you just talked about. Just oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So so there's a I have a deep frustration with the limits in the sea because if you go back and you look at when they started, there's very few of and it's illegal. What it is is it's a legal analysis of the validity of claims, you know, you know, excessive claims all over the world. And that's the first point. That's the starting point for doing a freedom of navigation operation or to start sending naval units to start to contest excessive claims. You don't have that legal foundation. You don't got the, the operations like you need because the diplomats and State Department aren't giving you the rationale for being there. And so it's, it's taken far too long. I don't think we have the legal capacity to wage lawfare. Um, and so limits to see is somewhat frustrating. But set that aside. Um, it's important that when you're going to uh, launch a interagency initiative that it has to be discreet. It can't be general. It can't be based on purely uh, philosophical or an ideological or a, uh, a principle. It has to be something geographically constrained, and it can't be too many places, and it can't be too many things. So that's why I picked four. Uh, four things, all geographically constrained in the South China Sea. The South China Sea is a decisive feeder because the Chinese have a lot of interest in that area. It plays in any fight over Taiwan should that happen. And it also, you got a lot of countries that are at play. There's a lot of opportunity there to change the chessboard. Chinese know it. We need to know it. So that's why the South China Sea is a decisive feeder. And so I, you pick that area to have the biggest strategic effect on the way that Chinese operate. And so the four features, again, you only have so many naval assets. You only got so much political leadership attention span to kind of to keep track of. Uh, so four. The first is Scarborough Shoal. Um, and it, the site of a 2012 U.S. diplomatic failure. And that failure was to accept an agreement with the Chinese after a standoff there for months between the Philippines and the Chinese. Uh, for the Chinese, basically, were get, both sides agreed they were going to, in 2012, uh, a, a deal brokered by U.S. diplomats and NSC leadership, National Security Council leadership, and only to see the Chinese not depart. The Philippines depart, the American diplomats, our side went away and say, oh, good success, it's resolved. China to this day still maintains a persistent presence in Scarborough Shoal. It's a promise broken, and the Filipinos know it. And if you want to bolster that alliance, you want to demonstrate the complicity and the, the distrust or the untrustworthiness of the Chinese Communist Party, a presence there nearby that's always highlighting that fact reminds the region of that sad story. So that's the Scarborough Shoal. Uh, it doesn't mean you're in there sticking your finger and driving in between Chinese uh, Coast Guard vessels and the shoal or trying to, to force anything. Just your presence there and keeping it, keeping the eye on what's happening there. That's, that's what I'm talking about for that effect. And then as you move over to Vietnam, you know, now Vietnam is only going to get so close to us because they are also – a Marxist-Leninist government, communist. There's issues that we're going to have, but we both have a strategic shared interest on pushing back against China's claims in the South China Sea. 
And so one area where that common interest aligns and also aligns with the principle is the freedom to exercise your economic rights in, the, the, in your EEZs. And so a naval presence along uh, Vietnam's southern EEZs, where they've uh, increasingly tried to bring in foreign chartered survey vessels to do oil exploration. Now, there's a few. Now, here's where it gets murky because there's a lot of overlapping claims. Don't have that U.S. presence where there's a dispute between Vietnam and Malaysia because there is some waters there that those two countries can test. But the point is, Vietnam should have the right to explore, and it's uncontested, with the exception of China, because China says everything's contested, and it's the EZs. And so that's where we should operate. And just make sure that we're watching and monitoring and make it clear that China that, hey, we're upholding this, this, this rules-based order, and we'll report it. Again, it doesn't mean we're going to go guns a-blazing uh, in defense of Vietnamese survey ships in the international waters necessarily. I'm not ruling it out, but I'm not ruling it in at the same time. And then I would then move over and say another area is the South Laconia Shoals, uh, down in the south, it's Malaysia and Indonesia have uh, fishing waters. They also have uh, oil exploration that's going on in that area at the same time. And so that's another area that would be very worthy to have a naval presence. And it's on the very edge of Chinese pushing into the South China Sea. So those are, those are three of the areas that I, I think are worth focusing on. And there's a fourth one, of course, and that's actually you know doing – where we are operating right now in Second Thomas Shoal and then the Spratleys in the middle there of that South China Sea donut. Um, Second Thomas Shoal right now, the Chinese are once again intimidating the, the Filipinos trying to go to their outpost there on uh, Second Thomas Shoal. And so uh, that could trigger the defense treaty, the mutual defense treaty we have, we have with the Philippines. So having a, mil a, fil a military presence nearby there is probably the best way to keep a cap on situation there from getting out of control. And so that, those are the four areas. You got to be discreet. You got to be geographically constrained. Otherwise, you lose the political focus uh, on our side. And the other thing is you got to be focused in that way so you can take limited mi uh, military forces and back up effective diplomacy. And so at the same time, in, in Kuala Lumpur, in Hanoi, in Manila, in Jakarta, you're going to have to have a very well-coordinated and active diplomacy too. And that has been missing, quite frankly. So well, if, we're, if, we're luck, yeah, if, if we're lucky and we avoid this you know, transitioning to any type of military conflict that nobody, I think including the Chinese, want, this is going to be a, a diplomatic, economic, political, throwing lawfare as, as a tool in there as well. And yes. it folds into something really neat. When I did the advertisement at the bottom of the hour, 30 minutes before the show, uh, about 15 minutes late, uh, later, former guest and uh, a name everybody here should be familiar with, um, retired Admiral John Harvey, he came in with, uh, with, with a question. I thought I'd roll your way because I always like when former guests, one way or another, ask a question. And he said, uh, how about we ratify the Law of Sea Convention and take our place with the other 167 countries that have already done so, to put our money where our mouth is, end of quote from Admiral Harvey. Uh, as part yeah. of that lawfare equation, of course, we have our own domestic political issue that, you know, mm -hmm. put it up for a vote and see yeah. what happens. But is there really any uh, 
any stick or carrot that we are we don't have access to that we would have access to if we uh, were part of the law of the sea convention there's no benefits that come from signing under the law of the sea I mean, I mean, it's a talking point that might make it, eat, you know, so our diplomats or when our flag officers visit overseas, they get this 30 second like talking point that's fed from them by the Chinese and saying, oh, you're not part of the law of sea. What a bunch of hypocrites. And then they move on to real business. And so, yeah, you don't want to have that that unfortunate talking point, but there'll be another one. And that's the only that's the only benefit that I see. And it's really very shallow. But I'm agnostic. At the end of the day, I'm agnostic on the, the on the conventional law of the sea. And I. And I'm not convinced that if we did sign on into it, that we have the wherewithal to really press aggressively our legal positions. And that's the real thing. When people say, we'll be in the room, we'll have a seat at the table, that's meaningless unless you've got, you know, the backbone and the energy to say, okay, we're going to insert ourselves into a, a whole host of issues across the world. Um, so very little benefit by becoming a part of it. If you do become a part of it, uh, some of the detractors out there will say, and there are already folks that are lining up saying, hey, once the United States becomes, we're going to take them to court over environmental issues. So the litigation, that once you get into it, we're going to be very busy litigating environmental issues, not going after the Chinese excessive maritime claims, like, like we're saying we think is important. So it's a distraction from the main thing. That's, a, that's one of the other. The other one, and, and this is in Congress, I think the biggest uh, impediment to getting enough votes, and that is the fact that we would be giving away a revenue from seabed resources. Now, it's a big hypothetical because right now they're not economically viable to go uh, mine for rare earths or manganese modules, which was really the issue, the rage back in the 70s and the 80s when UNCLOS was being mm -hmm. formulated. And again, a little history, the manganese nodules were part of a cover story for the Gomer Express to go find the Gulf submarine that sank with Soviet nuclear weapons on it, which is now declassified. So um, that's another inch. That's, that's, there's the conservative side that's been pushing back against giving up our income revenue of what could be trillions of dollars well in the future. I mean, it's still very far away if become economically viable. And the reality is when you look at the Senate, which is if you're going to accede to the UNCLOS formally, you just don't have the votes. And it doesn't look like that's going to become possible even after the midterms. So that's where I sit on UNCLOS. I'm looking at, at uh, more, a little, a little yeah. less lawfare and a little more, a little more ships in the water. Uh, so if oh, we yeah. have a presence, we're going to start declaring a presence in these four mm -hmm. areas you picked out, and or any other areas we would desire. Uh, I, also, yeah. I'm envisioning well, we're, what are we going to stick out there? I mean, how are we going to sustain them? And do we have the assets? Yeah. What's the cost? How do we support those assets? Are our friends in the area, mm -hmm. even our even our friends like the the Vietnamese who uh, may not really be our friends completely, but you know what? What, what do you envision as, a, as our needs to, to to keep assets out there, and do we have those assets? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was a defense attaché in Southeast Asia, um, I opened a lot of politically sensitive ports. Uh, I was able to get you know use of a you know actively using F-35s off of one of our uh, off the America in Essex rather to to basically do live ordinance exercises right all on the coast of South China Sea. 
that would not be possible if we didn't have those ships and aircraft available, and we would not have gotten favorable policies, access to politically sensitive ports and bases uh, in Southeast Asia, and I'm talking Malaysia in this case, uh, had we not been willing to do that. Uh, but to get there, I have to tell you, it, it was it, uh, almost it was a Herculean task. So the first thing, Navy needs to get better at how it does contracting and how it does port visit planning. Uh, we are still living on the ghost of Fat Leonard. Uh, there's, a, there's a hesitancy to send ships to new ports. There's a hesitancy to go pretty much to Southeast Asia, places that Fat Leonard's company, Glen Marine, actually used to service because there's an assumption that by going there, you are corrupt. And uh, that's not true. You got to be. You have to. You definitely have to be on guard because it's a different way of doing business in Asia. But that's not to say that just going to these ports means that you're going to be corrupted. And that's got to change. And we need more contracting agents. We need more contracting agents that are actually actually resident in the countries we want to send ships to. So Malaysia be top of the chart on that. Uh, Vietnam, of course. Uh, Philippines. I think Philippines pretty good. It's a very sizable uh, presence that's there. Uh, mostly because of the counter-terror operations in Mindanao in the south, and Indonesia too. So that, that's, that's the simplest logistics piece. I mean, that's the first thing is if you build it, they will come. And in building it is you got to get the, con- the contracting support for making these port visits possible. The other part is we need to change the way we do port visits. It needs to be much more economically lucrative to our host as well. Uh, too often we will get a port visit and then we'll fly in contracted people from another country uh, and maybe a country that the host that's hosting us not exactly in the best of terms with. And so we should try to rely more off of the host country's services and where they're not adequate should focus over time building their capacity to do light repairs like aluminum welding is one that comes to mind with LCS and with EPA, uh, the uh, vessels that we have based, the MSC vessels that are based out of Malaysia, or at least rotationally based out of Malaysia, or Singapore, rather. And so we, we just have to change our approach, and we have to get over the ghost of Fat Leonard uh, in that regard. And then, of course, last, we need to build more ships. We just don't have the fleet at the end of the day that we need to have uh, in all places in the world. And, again, the first place I would put a ship, if I had a new ship, I'd put it in Southeast Asia. That's where I would say, okay, new frigate, you're, you're, the balance of your operations is going to be in, in Southeast Asia in stop. While you may be based in, Hano, in Hawaii, in Pearl Harbor, all your deployments are going to be Southeast Asia. And that's Navy's got to start taking a much more deliberative and take control of the global force management process back to the joint staff and make sure that we're operating in the Southeast Asia decisive theater. So those are, those are a couple, but I, I mean, as, an, as someone that was operating in that area, trying to make strategy real and execute it, that contracting, that mentality that, that uh, has got to change on port visits in Southeast Asia, and it's gradually changing. Guys like uh, Admiral Paparo as well as Aquilino, uh, they're, they're, they know it, and I think they're driving on it, but the resources are too limited at the end of the day. Yeah, I think I, I'm so glad you brought up the Fat Leonard scandal. Um, and we had, uh, oh, Mark, his last, I'm, I'm having a Mark moment here. 
Uh, Tom, it's not Tom Watson. He's a golfer. Anyway, the guy who did the Fat Leonard <laughs> podcast got hours and hours yeah. of hours uh, from Project Brazen. It was a, it was a great, great show. If, uh, I'd offer to the listeners who are only coming here because of Brent. If you haven't heard our, our interview earlier this <laughs> year with Tom from Project Brazen about Fat Leonard, I'd offer that you should. I mean, Fat Leonard actual, he was arrested in 2016. So that's, uh, you know, even I can do the math there. And I didn't go to nuclear power mm-hmm. Um, that's six years ago. That's over one and a half times it took us to fight World War II. And it's mm-hmm. it's just so frustrating that institutionally we are so scared of our sailors and our mm-hmm. our our leaders that we we're hurting ourselves strategically but not doing important visits. But that's a, a different a different rant for a different day. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit because yeah. when you're talking and I think you're spot on, when we get those new ships uh, the FFG-62 and her sisters, they need to be home ported on the mm-hmm. West Coast. Kind of like in the Second World War, you could see the positioning of we sent our best ships into the Western Pacific. Our older ships, or less capable ships, did convoy duty in the Atlantic, or they cruised around a lot of our older uh, cruisers. Mm-hmm. They were up around the ocean. So I think it would definitely yeah. send a good effort prioritizing West and it also had me thinking about uh, oh, is Tom Wright from Project, Project Brazen? Thank you, uh, Mark. Just sent me oh, a yes. little little note. It's good to have an auxiliary brain there. Um, but <coughs> when you look at World War II, and this is something that that's going back into to your your Navy background a bit, we got a little smart and a lot lucky in the fact that mm-hmm. even though they didn't perform that too much. Um, in World War II, our fleet submarines were designed to scout for the fleet in the Pacific. And uh, as I encourage everybody to do, grab a globe, grab a chart, look at the Pacific, its range, its distance. And so we designed our fleet submarine to meet those requirements. Uh, When you look at how we are building our, I think the, the submarine community, as we've mentioned here before, before in previous episodes, I think has done a pretty good job relative to the other branches. But when you look at mm-hmm. our our surface fleet design process and how we've construed our air wing over the last two decades, uh, are we yeah. are we designing our units correctly to meet the the hard facts of the Pacific? And if not, what are some of the things you you think the the program managers should reprioritize near the top? Yeah, so the short answer is no, but I think like a recovering alcoholic, the first step is acknowledging you have a problem, and I think Navy has acknowledged that it's got a problem in the last few years. It's just struggling to figure out how to get the institutional and the industry that's used to doing business and building certain type of things a certain way to start to shift, and so we're we're kind of in that we're breaking the rust off the gears still to start to, to basically get the ship going in the right direction. So uh, air wing, uh, we had several chances over the last 30 years to actually invest in and develop long range strike aircraft. And at every t- turn we didn't, um, hopefully that changes right now. We're getting a little uh, bandaid by using the MQ 25 drones as a tanker to give a little extra legs to F 35 and F 18s. Well, that's, that's a band-aid. That's not going to be good enough. That, that doesn't give you the, 
the kind of the capacity you're going to need in a high intensity fight. And I'm not convinced you're going to be able to sustain it for, you know, historically you sustain carrier ops for about three days and, every, and the pilots are wasted and you're out of fuel and you need to go back and recoup and rearm. So I don't know if we're going to be in a situation where maybe three days ain't good enough. And so we're going to need more unmanned. We're going to need to have more uh, range, both in the weapons as well as the aircraft, and not relying on tanking, by the way, uh, air, in air refueling. So that's the air wing. That's the big thing. Then over on the ship's side, this um, uh, distributed lethal operations, DMO, distributed maritime operations, um, that, that's a reality just driven by the way the Chinese are developing their capabilities. But I'm not sure we're operating how we would fight in that environment yet. So part of with the surface fleet is we need to start exercising at scale, not like onesies, twosies. And, uh, I'm talking fleet-level exercises need to become much more routine and more frequent to start testing, you know, when we're far away and we're most dispersed where the threats are, you know, mitigated or far, you know, I think of the distant, like around Guam, how would you be, dis- what's the disposition of your forces and the type of operations, long-range strike using tomahawk, uh, anti-submarine warfare protection in that part, maybe even missile defense for protecting some of the land places such as Guam. But then as you move closer to China, how does that disposition of force operations change? Still, again, at the fleet. And then as you move inside the East China Sea or the South China Sea in a, in a conflict, what would that look like? And how do you operate? You're going to operate vastly different in those three places. And so... Is it just me or do we lose our guest? Sal, are you there? Hello? Anybody hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Looks like we lost. Okay. Brent. Yeah, yeah. Brent, Brent dropped off. I guess he'll call back in a minute. He'll uh, dial back. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I like Brent's response to the, oh, he's back. Okay, we don't have tap dance. <laughs> Someone in uh, Beijing probably didn't like what I was saying. I'm I'm closer to them, unfortunately, than I'm to you guys back in the states. But uh, yeah, computer, computer I'm back. network attack is a real thing. <laughs> oh, it is. Okay, Brent, if you just wanted to yeah, uh, pick up where you dropped off, it's over to you. Um. So. Kind of, I'll, I'll basically, I'll probably a good place for me to stop. I try not to speak for too long because I, I don't want to rant to ramble for too long. But, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you guys to the next question. Well, I, I, I'm a big believer in uh, training like you'll fight, so I appreciate your mm. your uh, scenario there. Uh, one of the one of the other questions is though that, and I, and I think this is a phrase my co-host uh, uh, created maybe when we were talking to Hunter Stires, uh, about the audacity of ambiguity. Is, is there a, 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 a reason for us to be a little bit mysterious in our approach to things, or is, it, is this too late in this world with the modern uh, communications and satellite reviews and all that stuff for us to be ambiguous? Well, uh, so the first thing is I don't think it's wise to, to paint, or, paint yourself or to set, set limits or to box uh, political leadership in. 
You want to maximize the choices that political leadership has. And so part of that is the military has to always look for capability and capacity to give options, to make that menu of choices bigger, not shorter. And when you start to take out ambiguity, you're doing you're 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 violating that principle over in the diplomatic side of the house. Because if the diplomat starts saying, well, this is a red line or we won't tolerate this, now you've set and you've boxed yourself in. And you may find that when the, the time comes that politically, both domestically as well as diplomatically, it's like, hey, we really probably shouldn't respond like we said we were. And so it's, a, it's an unnecessary constraint in my mind. But what you got to do, those are the words in, where you're saying what you're, you know, don't box yourself in decision-wise. But if you have a military presence, that quiet stick that's over the horizon, your adversary or your competitors will know and have to think about that without you saying much. That's that speak softly and carry a big stick mantra, I think, really plays here. And I think it's unhealthy what I'm hearing in Congress where they want to do away with ambiguity and get pre conflict authorities to the president or force the president to be in a situation where we'd react in a certain way in a Taiwan scenario, Taiwan conflict erupts. I, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I know that there's a lot of reason to be hesitant with the current leadership, um, but national interests should always dictate context in which a fight or a contest happens. You can't predict. So you want maximum freedom of choice and freedom of movement to your military forces Taking away ambiguity um, doesn't help you in that regard. But if you continue with ambiguity being affected, you got to have a military presence. So you got to have both. Just like the just like the Japanese did before World War II. Mm-hmm. Again, all you have to do is, is look at the at the chart. When you look at the sea lines yeah. of communication between East Asia and the rest of the world, it goes right by the Philippines. And um, mm. you, you, you can't avoid that at all. And it's been interesting the last, I don't know where you draw the line, but definitely we'll just call it the last decade. There's been a little bit of a dance between the, uh, the Chinese and the Filipinos um, trying to come to an agreement on one side, but also uh, snapping at each other over uh, mm. our little islets and sandbars here and there. What is the, the state of play from your perspective on that changing relationship uh, with the People's Republic of China from the, the Philippine perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't think it's a natural fit. There's too much conflict of interest between the Filipinos and the Chinese. So at the end of the day, you know, the Chinese may be able to pay someone off. They may be able to influence a vote or make a, a very, you know, transactional kind of a uh, situation where they give some goods, they get a political decision that they like out of Manila. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the, the, they just have too many conflicting interests. So it's an unnatural fit. But the United States, along with allies like Japan and Australia, need to provide a much better viable alternative to the Chinese. And, and in 2020, we saw the Philippines actually respond very favorably when we were supporting the Malaysian survey operations in the South China, and they're easy in the West Kapala. And so we've got to do more of that kind of activity to let the, the Filipinos know that, hey, we're not only here just for our own interests, but our presence by doing that 
also enables your economic interest in your own waters and also allows you to have a little bit more leverage against the Chinese that allows them to make, a, you know, it gives them more freedom of maneuver. But at the same time, our interests are more aligned on security than they'll ever be with the Chinese. Um, and it's, I think, important to note that just in the last week, I think I was here in Tokyo, just got here in Tokyo early last week, when uh, the new administration in Manila said that they are walking away from any kind of co-development of the South China Sea with the Chinese, and they're killing, you know, some of the some of the last vestiges of the Chinese efforts to try to lure the Philippines into some grand compromise of their disputed claims in the South China Sea. So it's still a little early with Marcus, the new president in Manila, but it looks like we're going to be somewhere between uh, where we were before Duterte and Duterte's early part of his administration. So maybe a pragmatic, but probably more forceful uh, than Duterte was against China. Um, that's my read right now. And, and you mentioned the Japanese. And so, I'm, I mean, the Japanese have been ahead of us in getting the Chinese right for a lot of reasons. One, the, the right next door to them. Uh, they have a lot of common uh, history and culture that's shared. And, and so uh, the Japanese are also engaged with the Philippines as well. And so that's helpful. A uh, big thing for the Philippines is to build up their, their capacity. And as they get more of a Coast Guard, they get more of a Navy, that'll give their political leadership and the President Marcus more options. When you don't have any options, you kind of have to make do with what you got and play the hand you're dealt. And so they're strengthening their hand, I hope, with the help with of the United States and Japan. And so hopefully in the next couple of years we may see that relationship change in a much in a much stronger trajectory. Well, let's talk about our relationship with some of the other countries. If if we were to maintain yeah. a presence, as you suggested, uh, would some of the other countries who do have navies, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, they're not great big navies, but they are they are capable. They have some capable ships. Would they come out and play and and uh, uh, help protect their own waters and the waters of their of their neighbors? You think just to keep the uh, presence going? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I'll go, I'll, I'll go around the South China Sea. I'll go counterclockwise and start with Vietnam. So I mean, Vietnam's the most visible and also the most diplomatically overt on their pushing back against China. Um, and they've been doubling down on building up their Coast Guard and their Navy for quite a while. So they're making investments, and they're, they're pushing out into their EEZ. Now, there's a problem there. They also have overlapping claims with Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, too. So the key thing is how do you moderate and keep the Vietnamese on side by being focused on, you know, their waters that are contested with the Chinese a little closer to home. Uh, but they're building out. So they're there. They're willing. The thing is you've got to do it over the horizon. Don't make a big deal out of it, but do it and operate coordinated at sea, you know, ships, uh, skipper from one ship, skipper to another ship, kind of talking and coordinating how they sail around those four features I mentioned earlier. So when operating off of Vietnam, ZEZ, should be talking to their Coast Guard and their Navy when you're doing that. Um, then moving down to, let's say, Malaysia. Now, Malaysia has been problematic. I mean, they've, got, they've changed government several times uh, the last few years. Uh, but they've been very clear that they want to build out their Coast Guard, the MMEA, uh, and they've grown their Navy a little bit, but they keep having growing problems. Uh, they have a lot of connections to China, economic ones that they're trying to manage, um, but Malaysia's out there. South Laconia Shoal, 
they're out there, and they try to maintain a persistent naval and coast guard presence. Operating there, coordinating with the Malaysians makes a lot of sense. Uh, Indonesia, in the last five years, has grown dramatically its, its presence on Natuna Island. Uh, Air Force, Navy, um, and even their Coast Guard. Um, and then the Philippines. Now, the Philippines has got budgetary and government and, and organizational problems they have been trying to manage to work through. But they've been very clear, and they've made steady but very small progress in growing their Coast Guard and their Navy. So everyone's growing. Everyone's investing because they realize they need to police their own waters. Um, we just need to be there to kind of welcome them and to kind of coordinate and try to make sure that we don't have any on-site goals, basically, where you got rather than contesting and pushing back against China, they're pushing it back against each other. And so that's a real challenge. Uh, and that requires the diplomats and the military folks and even the economic interest to be you know, connected at the hip and working together integrated from the beginning, not a way we normally do business in the government where there are cylinders of excellence operating independently. they got to be together. Otherwise, you're going to have the Filipinos at the Malaysians disputing, you know, their waters and research uh, survey ops and, and overlapped EEZs when it really should be the Chinese they're worried about. Okay, Brent, if I start reading cylinders of excellence in documents, I'm going to blame you. <laughs> a new, new buzzword. We'll, we'll yep. blame Brent Sadler if anybody uses uh, cylinders of excellence for silos. But that's okay. It does sound better. I can't yeah. give full credit for that. I, I, would, I would feel like we have missed an opportunity here. If we, we didn't talk for a little bit about Japan, I mean, you're calling from Japan mm-hmm. here. You're, you're yeah. there doing great stuff, and it's been really clear uh, when you when you look at it again, kind of that time lapse photography. Especially in the last five years, there appears to be a bit of an intellectual quickening in Japan when it comes to yeah. her national defense posture. And I've actually had uh, a couple of folks <clears throat> that I've spoken with in the last uh, eight or nine months that have yeah. come back working with the Japanese military. And they both very somberly mm-hmm. says, uh, Japan is more hawkish with what China plans to do than, than most of us we are. That, that Japan is seeing and feeling something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk for a little bit uh, yeah. about uh, how Japan is, is starting to, to change both in, in structure mm-hmm. and mindset towards China, South Korea, Taiwan, and as you've already mentioned, the Philippines. Because, yeah. again, when you look at the map mm-hmm. and you look how Japan feeds and employs itself, that's her artery. goes right mm-hmm. through those properties. Yeah. Yes, I mean, th- there's a long conversation. So I grew up in Japan, high school in the 80s, um, lots of assignments here, um, and in the South Pacific as well. So I, I kind of my perspective is I, I look over it for like the last 40 or 50 years, and the Japan just of five, six years ago, when I was last here writing the defense guidelines, uh, that's the U.S.-Japan, the way the military and the two governments work together in military issues. Um, Japan is not even, it's not the same Japan even six, seven years ago. I was talking at Kobe University last week uh, with some of the graduate students, and they are very realist. These are normally students 
and the younger Japanese are more idealistic and more pacifist, but also a lot of naive about how hard power and soft power actually work. And the intents of countries like Russia and China, uh, they're realists. I mean, I was surprised. And, and I'm hearing from other academics in Japan and other institutions that it's not just a one-off. It's a national trend. So there's been an awakening of the last 20 years or so in Japan. It's real. It's comprehensive. Whether or not they're able to be um, to deliver on that is, big, is an open question. They've got uh, their parliamentarian system. They've got elections coming up on the 10th. And that will be an indication about how far this new Kishida government pushes on getting to 2% of their GDP on defense. And you got to realize, since the end of World War II, they had this kind of unwritten rule that thou shall not spend more than 1% on defense. So even breaking 1% is a huge psychological barrier that they will have broken on their way to 2%. And it seems like they're intent, dead, dead set intent on it. So something to watch. Um, but you get China. They've been watching China for quite a long time and been trying to you know, sound the alarm with the United States for a long time. Um, and I don't see that changing. Uh, it's very clear now Japanese put Taiwan in their formal documents and say in the defense of Japan, you know, if a, if a conflict in Taiwan occurs, it will directly affect their security. So it's pretty clear they're, they're locked in with us if things go south with the Chinese over Taiwan. Again, they have their own ambiguity in policy as well, but I'd have to say it's pretty clear. It's stark when it comes to Taiwan specifically. Um, and, of course, places like the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, where they were always very careful about their diplomatic and their military discussions and presence, uh, they're very explicit, and they're welcomed by countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Tonga, and Samoa. They're welcomed in, the, in, the, in those parts of the world where the legacies of World War II, when I was a kid growing up in the area, were pretty strong. They didn't like the Japanese, didn't want them anywhere around, maybe their business. Those days have long gone. And we've got a real comprehensive partner in Japan. It's just there's going to be some serious questions that they've got to get through about how they're going to pay for it. But they know it's an existential threat that, they, that they're dealing with in China. So I'll have more to follow on that. I've been looking at the, at the Sea of Japan because uh, the Japanese know the big threats coming from China in the Senkakus and the Okinawa area. But the Chinese and the Russians are working together, and you got the North Koreans all mixing it up in the South or in the Sea of Japan. That could be a distraction from a rebalance to the main, the, you know, the main area of contention to the Southwest here from Tokyo. Um, and so I'm looking at the Sea of Japan right now and how to actually make sure you don't get distracted, strategic distraction in that area, but still do the things you need to to protect against uh, North Korean missile launches and the like. I wanted to throw in uh, a question about South Korea. We don't have much time left, but, but talk yeah. about where South, South Korea is playing in this, too, because I know they've got some, some very oh, nice yeah. little ships they're building. Oh, so, South, so South Korea is, is very capable, but everything they do is fixated on North Korea. I mean, that's the near threat. So I, it's totally understandable. There's only so much they can do away from South Korea. That's not to say they don't have interest. Globally, they do. They're a large economy, but militarily, they're all about North Korea, as they, they should be. Um, the new president, Yoon, that's in, much more 
in favor of working with the United States and Japan militarily, and Jisomia may come back, who knows, with trilateral information sharing. But uh, the Japanese, uh, and, you know, their Coast Guard and their Navy, they don't have quite the same uh, top cover in military-to-military relations and Coast Guard-to-Coast Guard relations with the South Koreans that they would like to have in the, South, in the, in the Sea of Japan, rather. And so there's some room there for the two countries to kind of work through uh, that has to happen. Um, so South Korea, you know, still some, some concern there because they have animosities with the Japanese. But, yeah, um, I'm, that one I'm watching closely uh, and worried that they, man- that they have to manage it very carefully in, in Seoul because there is a, it's a 50-50 split in Korea. Um, in favor of doing more with the Japanese or not. Um, and that assumes the United States is a part of that effort with Japan. And on that note, I think we've, uh, we've eaten up an hour of your time, Brent. Uh, it's been a, a great hour. It's uh, obviously uh, this, this is something that we could talk about for hours on end. And it's an important topic, especially because everybody else understandably has been focused on some uh, events in, in Europe that mm-hmm. also are in a large scheme of things. Uh, before we go, if um, if folks wanted to keep up on what you're working on and uh, where your areas of interest are, where's a good place for them to track on you, and what could we expect from you next? Oh, absolutely. So the best way to, to track, I put all my stuff on LinkedIn. I mean, it's not political stuff. It's not social. It's all of the Navy and the geopolitical stuff that I write about, I put on LinkedIn. But, of course, if you go to heritage.org, you know, www.heritage.org, and then you just put Brent Sadler in the search field, you'll see everything that I write, all my, my uh, events that I host and interviews and everything else. Uh, that's probably the best place. Uh, but the next big thing you're going to see, I think, the end of this week you're go- or on Friday, you're going to see in proceedings an, an article about uh, the economic aspects of this counterinsurgency effort that Hunter Styers has been so effective at uh, uh, conveying. So you're going to see that, and you're going to see probably in the next month, you'll see the report from the work that I'm doing here in Japan on the Sea of Japan uh, issues and the security dynamics there. Well, we're sure we, we look, look forward to that. Yeah, look forward to that, and would love to have you come back and talk about it too. So. Thank you. Absolutely. Sounds great. And uh, once again, Brent, thank you very much for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And for everybody else, we hope you all have a great July 4th coming up and that you have a great Navy Day. Cheers. Yeah.